Hello and welcome to our podcast, Hashtag Divorce, with Audrey Zetoun, divorce coach based in London, and myself, Sarah-Jane Taster, French family lawyer practicing in international law in England and Hong Kong. In our podcast, Hashtag Divorce, we will be bringing you hope, positivity, as well as practical information about divorce and well-being, food for thoughts, and hopefully, support to help you move forward at each and every step of the divorce process. If you would like to know more about what we do when we're not doing this podcast, you can go to our websites, tasterfamilylaw.co.uk and audreyzcoaching.com. Back to today's topic. We often talk about divorce and the consequences of the divorce, but there is also another situation we need to address more specifically, which is the end of the cohabitation. Today, we are happy to be joined once again by Vas, solicitor at Tyre-Roxburg, to talk about cohabitation, the misconception of common law marriages, and the consequences of separation on the finances on the children in the absence of a legally binding marriage. So, hello, Vas. It's such a pleasure to have you again. We had such a great episode last time, and I'm sure today you're going to enlighten us. So for those who didn't listen to our previous episode, the number 31, during which we talked about child arrangement in England and well, can you please briefly tell us what you do? Good morning. Hello, ladies. It's been it's a pleasure to join you again and always lovely collaborating with you. So thank you for your kind introduction. I'm a family law solicitor specializing in family law matters. My main focus is on divorce, financial matters and child arrangements. But as you quite rightly say, there is also this, um, I quite often call it the big question mark over common law marriages and lots of misconceptions surrounding that. So I'm happy to join you today and hopefully shed some light on what's involved and implications of separating once you've been cohabiting with your partner. So happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Vas. So yes, can you maybe start by explaining the myth of common law marriage and the risks linked to this notion? Well, I think, like you rightly state, it is a myth. Common law marriage is a myth that it's a marriage and that there is some financial security following the separation of a cohabiting couple. However, in the UK, there is no legal basis following separation from a cohabitation. So a cohabiting couple, however long they have been together, have no more right than any two associates, friends, or even, even strangers. So for example, and encounters that I've found over the years that I've been practicing, um, it's quite can be quite sad in that there may be a couple who've been cohabitating for 10, 20, even 30 years, and a property could be in the sole name of one person. And Understandably, the person with no legal title to that property has contributed a lot, whether that be through mortgage installments or just day-to-day expenses. They separate and are left with virtually or technically nothing. So I think there's been a gap in this area that there's not been a lot of promotion into protecting the party who is in that long-term relationship. And I think it's this is a brilliant podcast because hopefully it will send out a very good message to people in that situation and to ensure that when you are cohabiting, that you do protect your interests and make sure that you're not left in a very precarious and vulnerable position should the relationship come to an end, which is hopefully never going to be the case. But as we know, 
<laughs> it yes. does happen. Yeah, well, thank you for this introduction about this theme of cohabitation. So can you confirm so that a cohabiting couple do not have the same rights as married couple in England and Wales? And can you briefly also confirm that there is no law relating to unmarried couples? So you're quite right, Sarah Jane. So the presumption of law follows the title. So generally speaking, if there is a deed that says that you are to hold the property jointly, then upon separation, the property will be split 50-50. If the property is in the sole name of one party, then the property belongs to that one party. Yes, there are certain circumstances where you could claim an interest, but those circumstances are quite are quite rigid in that you need to show that there was a common intention between you and the other party that you were to hold the property other than what the legal title states. So that could be through a written agreement, a declaration of trust that's attached to the title of the property. It could even be through a verbal communication. However, there's a huge caveat with these verbal communications because when it comes down to it, you have to prove it's one word against the other. And unfortunately, I've encountered many situations where there have been verbal agreements and the other party saying, no, we didn't say this. The other party saying, yes, we did. And you end up going to court and it will be one word against the other. And generally speaking, the court will err on the side of caution. The other example could be if you have made a significant contribution to this property. So, for example, invested a huge sum of money in this property, then that may have an impact. But it is still a very precarious situation. And my advice what I would like to send out to everybody is that if you wish to have an interest in this property, then get it in writing, create a deed, cohabitation agreement, declaration of trust, have it there in black and white so that the common intention is clear. Whether you're even if you're in a very happy relationship now, nobody can predict the future. So if you're in a happy relationship, your partner shouldn't have a problem in solidifying that intention and confirming it in an agreement. That would be my sort of golden advice to to people out there listening to this podcast and may find themselves in that situation. Okay, so you've started answering my next question. Oh, forgive me, sorry. <laughs> no, but that, that's <laughs> no, but it, it's really good because it, it shows that our question was, what are the risks linked to not being married? A lot of our clients, well, a lot of my clients, French clients living in England, they, for instance, they would know in France that there is nothing to protect them if they're not married. But because in England we talk about common law marriages, they sometimes think that they are protected. So a lot of our clients, they fear separation because, for instance, they will have stopped working to raise the children and know that they are in a vulnerable position because they are not financially independent. So what would you advise them to do when they're not married are they entitled to anything? So that's an interesting point, and I'm glad you've sort of led the conversation into that realm because there is, if you, if there are children in the relationship, there is what's called a Schedule Two application that you can make. Uh, but it, again, there are some important things to factor in into consideration. So Schedule 2 application is available for unmarried parents and such an application provides various orders. Uh, so mainly three orders and those that being periodical payments. So that's maintenance payments for the children. So if you cannot reach an agreement on monthly maintenance for the children, you have this option, this um, application that you can run, get run to the court with and see if they can order a periodical payment. 
You can also make an application for lump sum orders. So if you can prove to the court that you need that you need a certain amount of money for the children, then again, the court has the jurisdiction and the power to order lump sum payments. And most in, not most importantly, but most interestingly, there is also an order, the power of the courts to make an order for a transfer or settlement for the purpose of providing a home for the children. So, for example, stereotypically, and it's not always the situation, but if we just use the stereotypical example, man and woman living together many years have a child. Property is in the, the man's sole name. They separate. The wife, the mother can make an application for that property to be transferred on trust to her for the benefit of the child. However, and this is the huge caveat, once the child reaches the age of majority, i.e. 18, or ceases full-time education, the property will revert back to the father. So the entire purpose of that order is to ensure that there is a home for the child during their minor years. So the mother will not gain a property, but she will have a property to accommodate the child. So it can be very, very helpful. However, if somebody is looking for more long-term security, that, that won't be available, I'm afraid. And it goes back to the point that I raised earlier on, the importance of documenting it, making your common intention, or even just changing the title of the property. If you have plans to invest in this property and you believe you have an interest in this property, speak to your partner and look at changing the title and protecting yourself as much as possible. I hope that answers that question. Yes. <laughs> so, so basically, just to summarise, there is no legal disposition within matrimonial law because it's not a marriage, but you right. have to look into like land law, property law to protect yourself or trust, law of trust to protect yes, yourself. Yes, indeed. Or just have an agreement. If there is just a general agreement there to say that the common intention between us, yes, you had this property before we met. However, I'm going to be helping with a mortgage. I am regarded as inverted commas, your common law wife, even though that doesn't exist. However, I need an interest in this property. And you reach an agreement that yes, this whilst it's in my sole name, there is a common intention that you will have an interest as well. If that's documented, then there is a degree of protection. However, you can't get more protection than actually changing the legal title. And that is the yeah. ideal situation. But I understand that there may be various situations where that might not be possible. A party might have a CCJ, county court judgment, can't be put on the mortgage. There are various reasons that you can't be put on the title. So at the very least, protect yourself by a statutory declaration or at least a document where you both sign before witnesses that will confirm that one has an interest in that property and the percentage of that interest, of course. Sorry, Audrey, I have Go another ahead. question because we're talking about a finances agreement. I know we were supposed to talk about it later, but I'm afraid I'm going to forget. And I think it's important. Would it be the same if you want to do an agreement with about the children who they live with and when they see the parents? Would you have to draft the same kind of agreement? So when it comes to child arrangements, there's no difference between a married couple and a cohabiting couple. So you are protected under the umbrella of the law in that respect. So whatever a married couple would have to do to put arrangements in place would be the, exactly the same as a cohabiting couple. So if you go back to the podcast that we did, I believe, was it number 31? 31, yes, 31. Yes. 31. 
you know, we, we did explore that in detail. And just mm -hmm. to summarise my advice at that time and continues to be the case, always best to reach an agreement, an amicable agreement, your parents, you've got to try and be harmonious as best as possible for the sake of those children. If an agreement can't be reached, then there's always the court's recourse that you can make an application to the court, which should always generally be last resort. And that is exactly the same situation for a married couple as it is for a cohabiting couple. But you said to make decisions, and that's really clear. And about education or religion, or is it the same as married couple in terms of that? You, exactly would you go to court same. as well? Correct, Audrey. It's exactly the same. So parental responsibility, parent, a mother automatically has parental responsibility. A father gains parental responsibility if he's named on the birth certificate or has been married to the mother. So if you're not married, speaking on behalf of fathers, it's important that you're named on the birth certificate in order to be granted parental responsibility. If you're not, not the end of the world, you can still enter into a parental responsibility agreement. If the mother doesn't agree with that, you can make an application to the court for a parental responsibility order. So when it comes to children, the options are vast. You know, you're not restricted like you are with the finances in comparison to marriage and cohabiting. So from a father's perspective, always best to be named on the birth certificate. Once you have parental responsibility, you have equal rights and responsibilities, as the, the words suggest, <laughs> parental responsibility. And yes, one parent cannot make a decision regarding the child in the absence or the disagreement of the other. If you can't reach an agreement, again, have to make an application to the court for a specific issue order, and then the court will decide on which parent's view is in the best interest of the child. Um, you had a question on the mortgage repayment order. Yes, yes. I w yeah, I was just wondering, I mean, I think that's you answered. That's why I wasn't sure I, we need to talk about it again. But if you participated to mortgage repayment, I guess, how can you fight, you know, that you also entitled some of the property? Again, very sad situation. I've had I've encountered many people who've come and said, I've been paying the mortgage all this time and it's a repayment. It doesn't matter, I'm afraid. You know, there is an argument that had you not been living in that property, you could have been paying rent somewhere else. Or it again comes back to the point of what was the common intention. If you were paying that mortgage and you had a discussion with your partner to say, I'm going to pay the mortgage and that's on the basis that I'm going to have a legal entitlement to this property, then again, that goes back to what I said, that there is a common intention and also the, the huge caveat that it's a verbal agreement and having to prove that if it becomes a point of dispute in the future. So if you are to contribute, if one is to contribute to the mortgage on the basis and on the understanding that they're to have a legal entitlement to that property, document it. goes back to the point that verbal, yes, you know, that, that is that is um, proof of common intention, but you can't prove anything more rigidly than, than something that's documented in black and white in an agreement. So just be very, very careful with that. If you want to pay for a mortgage and you want to have a legal entitlement, make it clear by documenting it. So you could be kicked out by your partner of the Effectively. house. Yes. I, I had a case where this poor woman was in a relationship for over 20 years. She was a director of the business. She was in the house and she was entitled to nothing. And again, another sort of um, interesting point to explore. It's not just the family home. It could be any other asset. So going back to the Schedule 2 application for the benefit of the children, that's only in relation to the family home. So if you have any other assets, such as a business, a car, chattels, you have to be clear, again, documenting it in an agreement. Otherwise, 
you will not be entitled to anything. So you have to be really, really careful. And yes, you can be kicked out, to put it quite bluntly. I know, very frightening. That's very terrifying, yes. Yeah. It's terrifying, but thank you, Vass, for really pointing out all the pitfalls of the common law marriage because a lot of people are unaware of all that. So thank you so much. I just want to turn one minute to Audrey <laughs> and ask her, what would be your advice as a divorce and breakup coach? Do you think that this is an area where unmarried couple would need more help than a natural married couple? Because realizing that they don't have any protection may be even an, an added difficulty in the breakup. I think definitely the emotion involved and the risks could be higher in terms of uh, financial risk, as we, we mentioned just now. So it would be, I mean, obviously the law, I can't advise on that, but I can advise on at least protect themselves the most they can after the breakup. As you mentioned, it could be what decisions they need to make because sometimes they can make hasty decisions or give it all up without fighting. They say, yes, it's true, we're not married, I'm leaving. Or the other person could be uh, strongly uh, say it's my property, but maybe if we can both help them see both sides of the story and help them have an amicable breakup, it's like we say for, for divorce really, have an amicable breakup, see the both sides of the story, try to help them both see how we can communicate and really have a constructive breakup so they both have what they're, they're entitled to. That needs a lot of work. I mean, if they come to me as a couple, it could really help them because sometimes the communication can be totally broken down and one can be angry, one can be really scared or miserable and, you know, without any confidence. So yeah, that could be a way to help the couple see both sides and see actually, yes, uh, what's my benefit in helping out? What's my benefit in saying that actually, yes, my partner did uh, some mortgage payment, you know, uh, and how can I be fair uh, to help? But that is a lot of um, uh, work around communication and, and seeing on the other side of the story. <laughs> If I can just sort of point it out as well, I think your role could potentially, certain circumstances, Audrey, be absolutely crucial because people, as they become aware, they could already be in a relationship and could be midway and things may be a bit tricky and relationship could be a little bit rocky. And now hearing this and becoming aware of the precarious position they're in, they may not be able to know or take that step to have that conversation with their partner and again that's where you say you can't advise on the law I can't my role steps you know it's out of my sort of realm of advising clients how to approach their partner and how to sort of deal with it in a productive constructive and amicable way so in order to protect themselves so you know, if anybody's out there and is in a situation where they're not sure on how to approach this topic with their partner, I think that your role as a divorce coach could be crucial. And this is where we work so well together. And I love doing these podcasts with you because you know, we're ultimately our goal is to help people as much as yeah. we possibly can and protect them. And we work so well and complement our services, complement each other so well. Thank you, Vas. Uh, yeah, it's a very good point. I, I didn't think of that, but definitely because it's about having those difficult conversations and that's what I do so much in my workshop in, with my clients. And it's so important to have the tools to address difficult conversation to your partner and not let it sleep. Oh, well, wait, it's not the moment. Or oh, I'm too scared of his reaction or her reaction. I'd rather not say anything. And then the bomb is like a ticking bomb for me. And it could explode any moment because yeah. you hold on too much, you know, your emotions build up and then it could be a massive argument at the end. So yes, definitely have those conversations before uh, you feel you're too overwhelmed or it's too late. Yeah. 
us. Thank you, Lass. You know, the reason why we wanted to do this episode on that subject is because we have more and more people coming to us with that issue of, I've suddenly realized that I'm not protected. I have nothing. And what do I do now? So I and Audrey believe that it's really important to inform people when everything's going fine in the couple that they should take some measures in order to to protect themselves if something happens later on in the relationship. So Vas, one last time. I'm glad glad I can see what's coming. I'm glad I'm going to do it. Can you, you know, just for some people who just realize that not being married can be problematic, what would you advise to them whilst everything's fine in their relationship in order to make sure that it continues that way? So, Stata, if you're living with somebody and the property is in their name, have that conversation, broach it in an amicable, harmonious way, sit down, have that discussion, have that that chat, open up your heart, explain the vulnerable position you're in, explain that the protection that you will require, particularly if you have children, or even if you don't have children, you know, this is your home. And I think it's important that, you know, we point out that this is somebody's home. And if something goes wrong, if you do not have provisions in place for the future, you could effectively be made homeless. So deal with it from the outset, have that chat. If you find it difficult, seek the assistance of an expert such as Audrey, who can give you the tools that you can speak in a very productive way. And if you can't come to an agreement, then I think that's an eye-opener. From It's better to have that eye-opener from the beginning of the relationship than 10, 15, 20 years down the line. And you could still be in the same situation, however, in a much more vulnerable position. So yes, to clarify common law marriage, it is a myth. It doesn't exist. You are merely cohabiting and you do have the same, no more rights than any other two associates or friends or or even a stranger living in somebody else's property. Like a lodger. A lodger, exactly. Exactly. So if you have any questions, then reach out to either Audrey or myself and you know, we can give you some more guidance on how to protect your your position, and it's okay. You know, it's it's not it's not something that you should be fearful of because if you're in the right relationship, then that conversation should unravel in a in a healthy in a healthy way. Yeah, it won't be a problem. Yes, thank you. And it's better to have it now than, as you said, 15 years mm-hmm. later down the line and you realize, oh my God, you know, I'm not, you know, my, my partner didn't want to do anything to protect me from the salt. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Vas. Thank you for setting the record straight today, common law marriages. It's always uh, so clear when you come and explain any topics we talk about. You are very clear. I'm sure our listeners uh, have a very good picture now of what their rights and obligations are when they're separating. I certainly understood much better and some questions are definitely answered now because I wasn't sure myself. So thank you very much again for coming today on the podcast. Thank Thank you for having me. and It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you have found this podcast useful, please share, like, and comment hashtag divorce and help spread the information around you if you think it may be useful to others. If you would like us to deal with one issue in particular, or if you would like to participate to our podcast, please don't hesitate to contact us. 
You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram by searching Audrey Zetoun or Sarah Jane Taster. It would be great to hear from you. See you soon for another episode of Hashtag Divorce.